0: Coming up on the Mission Readiness Podcast.
1: So the opportunity to serve is what brought me to Mission Readiness. You know, I now consider it my passion and my purpose. In a word, it brings me joy.
0: Mission Readiness is the organization of retired admirals and generals working to prepare America's youth for success. Join us as we talk with respected leaders about the challenges facing our next generation. And now, retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Rich Gross and Mission Readiness Membership Director Jake Ferreira.
2: Welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast. I'm your host, Rich Gross. With me today as co-host is Jake Ferreira, our Director of Membership at Mission Readiness. Jake, it's good to have you. Great to be here, sir. Great to see you. You as well. So I'm excited. This is another guest you've brought to us. It's Rear Admiral Frank Pons, who's one of the busiest members of Mission Readiness and, and does a lot for the organization. Tell us a little bit about Frank.
0: Yes, sir. Really fortunate to have him as a member. Met him a few years back when we were hosting a 10th anniversary celebration for Mission Renius on board the USS Midway Museum. And he was a prospective member at the time. And what really stood out to me was his energy and his passion for ensuring the next generation of young people would have the same opportunities that he was provided through his life in military service. So certainly connected with him that day and was really fortunate to bring him on board as a member. And uh, just like you, sir, he's one of our most engaged members, and he's given his time to support us on a number of different fronts. And I would say most recently, it was his contributions to a task force that helped inform the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition and Health. And that led into the administration's national strategy that has been really impactful on a number of different fronts to think how we can create really important change and get kids more physically active and end hunger as a primary initiative moving forward. So excited to listen to today's conversation, and hear more about Admiral Pond's uh, life, his time in the military, and his service with Mission Readiness.
2: Now, it sounds like it's going to be a great conversation. Just an incredible background and, and again, so has done some amazing things for us in Mission Readiness. So without further ado, let's talk to Rear Admiral Frank Ponds. My guest today on the Mission Readiness podcast is Rear Admiral Frank Pons, a retired U.S. Navy Admiral. In addition to his volunteer service with Mission Readiness, Admiral Pons leads his own consulting firm and remains very active in the San Diego region. He supports community organizations like the Jackie Robinson Family YMCA. He serves as a member of the County of San Diego Independent Redistricting Committee. And he's a mentor for officers and enlisted in the surface community. Frank served 33 years in the U.S. Navy across a variety of senior executive operational and managerial positions, including a command of five afloat and ashore units. We're thrilled to talk to Frank Pons today about his life, his career in the Navy, and some of the incredible stuff he's done as a member of Mission Readiness. Frank, welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Rich. It's good to be here. Thanks for the very kind introduction. And I just want to say Happy New Year to you and the many members of the Mission Readiness family. And I pray that 2023 brings everyone many years of happiness and health. As for the Pons family, 2022 ended with the arrival of our second grandchild. Oh,
2: congratulations. Oh, that's fantastic.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's only a couple of weeks old, but the garage is filled with toys and stuff like that. And my wife, well, you know, she's got that credit card at the ready. So, but that's okay. That's what we live for: our kids yep. and our grandkids.
2: Absolutely. And is that I'll, your first? Is that your first grandkid?
1: That's the second. The first second. one is a boy, and that and that little boy, Jordan, will be three in February. And I got to tell you, now the competition space is getting tight, but there's room for everyone in the Pond's household.
2: <laughs> well, fantastic. Well, we appreciate you coming on the podcast. Let's start talking about how you decided to end up joining the Navy. Tell us a little bit about your your growing up and and what made you decide.
1: Very good, Rich. I'm just going to say, you know, let me take you back to my early childhood. You know, growing up on a farm in this tiny town of Autogaville, Alabama. And we had a population of less than a thousand citizens. In addition to that, we had no traffic lights and just a few yellow caution lights. Something like the town of Mayberry RFD. And well, although our population has grown a wee bit over the years, we still haven't gotten our first traffic light. But that's okay because... It was that small town of close-knit communities that enabled and encouraged this young man, Frank Ponds and others like me, you know, to dream big, you know, beyond the creeks, the ponds, the farms, you know, that came to define my beloved hometown. So growing up on a small farm was not easy, Rich. I mean, we were not dirt poor, but we lived on the margins. You know, as a youngster, I tell kids today I had chores and responsibilities that most of you could not even imagine, you know, chores that had to be done before school and chores that were waiting after school. And there were a lot of tough lessons. The most important one for me was, you know, hard work, it pays off. So I was raised by my grandparents, and they did a heck of a job rearing me and my siblings. All the while, my mother did what she could financially to make ends meet. So reflecting on my school years, I came to realize that I was blessed and fortunate to move on beyond, you know, those cotton and cornfields that sort of dotted the line, the landscape and, you know, line the highways and the byways of that small town. But for a very long time, Rich, if I may, you know, I was reluctant and even embarrassed to share my experiences of growing up in what I characterize as a crossroads of the civil rights movement, the black belt of the South. You know, not just because of some of the racial undertones but because it was just small and we didn't have much. And I was reluctant to admit and acknowledge how the government subsidies and food supplement programs such as food stamps, what was then called welfare food, you know, it made the difference. Because back in the day, as in some cases now, the stigma of accepting free stuff from the government, it was nothing to be proud of, no matter how great the need. So in all honesty, Rich, those programs, which we're gonna talk about more later, it enabled us to make ends meet. But most of all, this curious young boy was allowed to focus and learn in the classroom without the distraction of hunger pains. I can and do admit today that those programs were critical, critical, rich, to my childhood and crucial during my formative years as a young man. You know, as you stated during the introduction, growing up, I went to the University of Alabama and then uh, went on to Officer Candidate School, graduated and got my commission in 1983. And let me just say that the University of Alabama, the great University of Alabama, we did not make The championship playoffs this year is sort of saddened because of that. But I did have the chance to work for the magnificent legendary football coach Paul Bear Bryant. I'm just going to stop and give you a little lesson that he taught us all back in that day. And it's going to give us an opportunity in the listeners to understand who I am. So it was a work study program that I was part of in the University of Alabama. And Coach Bryant was larger than life. I mean, when you looked at him, he looked like he stood 15 foot tall, but he was only about six feet. But to us, he was a giant of a person. That work-study program, I was responsible for cleaning out the lockers and the athletic spaces. And one day, Coach Bryant called us all in. It was about five of us. And he said he wanted to hold a meeting with us. And I go, hmm. So we all got together and we asked ourselves, what haven't we done? And what didn't we do uh, right? And what went wrong? So we were all sort of puzzled and wondering why we were going to get called to this meeting with the coach. So he called us in and he sat us down and we were all sort of fidgeting and nervous. And he said, and he looked at each of us and called us by our first name, mind you. He said, I just want to tell you how grateful I am for all the things that you do for this program. He said, without you, this would be a distraction. But because of you, I can focus on the players and the things that we are doing on the field. And that's a lesson that stuck with me, that no matter how junior or how irrelevant you may think you are in the grand scheme of things, if certain individuals value you and your contributions, then you yourself, you're valuable. So I was a fairly good student, Rich. I went on to graduate from college and I had hopes of one day working for one of those three letter organizations, the FBI, the CIA, or even the Secret Service. Well, needless to say, those hopes and dreams, they were sidelined late one Friday afternoon in June when I was approached by this Navy recruiter by the name of Chief Petty Officer Jones. Now, Chief Jones and I, we stay in touch this very day. So as the story goes, he spun this intriguing tale of sailing the high seas and seeing the world as an officer in the United States Navy. Uh, Chief Jones obviously was quite convincing. And one year later, I was commissioned. So how about my Navy life, my journey in the United States Navy? Uh, The first three years were very challenging. I was not a good swimmer. And my mariner skills were mediocre at best. The good news is that my shortcomings were found by hard work and the steady encouragement and mentorship of those who believe that I have something special and unique to offer. You know, I won't lie and say that I had these grandiose ideas of one day being an admiral because for the first nine years of my career I had still had dreams of being in law enforcement. But lucky for me, the Lord knew best and his fate would have it. I went on to serve 33 years in the United States Navy as a surface warfare officer before retiring in 2015. So I've served on every platform that the Navy probably has to offer from combat logistics force ships to carriers, cruisers and destroyers to amphibious ships. It's been a great experience, a great ride. I've been to many places i never imagined as a young kid that I would see. So here I am, second generation Navy, fourth generation military. And that is a tradition, Rich, and a legacy that I am proud of. But even more so, I'm proud that my brother and my son They continue to serve to this day. God is truly a good God. And that's my story, Rich.
2: Yeah, Frank, that's great. What an amazing story. There's so much there. And a very, very cool story about Coach Bryant, uh, who, of course, is an icon there at the University of Alabama. Well, you mentioned obviously your your Navy service. you mentioned I mentioned in your introduction you you commanded at several levels. Uh, did you have a command philosophy? And if so, what was it? And what are some of the lessons you learned commanding
1: in the Navy? Yes, command philosophy. And for a long time, I didn't understand what that meant because when I was a department head, that's normally when you're a mid grade officer and you have about eight to ten years in, um, I was approached by my so my executive officer, the second in command of one of the ships I was on, and he said, hey, what do you think makes a good leader? So I thought about it. I gave him some stuff. I was rambling because I wasn't prepared for the question. And he said, you know, when you go to if I put you in a position of leadership now, how would you do it? And I had to ponder for a long time. And he said, you go think about that and come back. You know, we'll sit down in the wardroom, you know, when we have in child and we'll talk it over. So we had that conversation and, my com- and then my comments and my response, it was a little bit more cogent then because I had time to think about it. But he said, what you just told me was the beginning of your command philosophy. He said, I want you to write that stuff down because at some point, if you go on to command, you would have to bring those thoughts in the clear view for the folks that work for you. So. My command philosophy started as a department head. But mind you, over the years, that philosophy matured. And I would say that it was shaped by the sum of my education and experiences, both rich, good and bad. The guiding principle of that command philosophy that I sort of adjusted over the years during my five commands, it was kind of straightforward and simple and went something like this. It stated that, first of all, we are professional warfighters, first and foremost, that we must never forget our purpose and fault in our quest. We must always be mindful that we may be called upon at a moment's notice to apply swift and decisive force anywhere and at any time. You know, It went on to state that in executing our mission, our resolve must be absolute, always moving forward, endeavoring to exceed all expectations, even our own. I said, there's no substitute for success and no, no excuse for failure. I said, at the end of the day, in all my command briefings and in the mornings, when I talked to the crew, I said this, I only ask that you give your very best and you do the best you can. And in return, I will do my absolute best to see that you have the tools and the resources to succeed. Now, that comment was key because anybody that served in the military or any organization, there's a command hierarchy. And at the top of that command hierarchy is the boss. And that was me. So I would take that picture of that command hierarchy and I would turn it upside down and I would tell my crew, I said, this is how I see this command. The most junior person is the person that needs the greatest resources. And I, at the bottom of that command, I am responsible for supporting and supplying that junior person. And hey, it resonated. They liked it because I reflected back on Coach Paul Bear Bryant and that conversation in that locker room to these young individuals who were just cleaning that space and how important we were to that program. (laughs) I love it. Now, okay, there were other elements you know to that command philosophy uh, at the top uh you know there were like nine elements i'm just going to give you the top two and it's probably the top two of any commander and the first one is people and the second one is leadership and rounding out that list uh was training communication trust integrity safety and finally work-life balance and i still haven't gotten an understanding and appreciation of what that means i know what it says But I still haven't been able to put it in practice yet, so forgive me.
2: (laughs) No, that's all right. No, good, good philosophy, and uh, I think very familiar to those of us who've been in the military. A lot of those elements—they are so important. Well, let's talk a little bit about mission readiness. Uh, Since joining, you've, as I said, you've been one of our most active members. You've participated in school site visits, you've read books to kids, you've moderated a nutrition panel in Georgia, to name a few. What motivated you to join Mission Readiness in the first place, and what drives you to remain so engaged in our work?
1: Well, I'm going to try to be brief in this response, Rich, and not get too emotional. But, you know, here's the thing. Who can contain themselves when you're talking about children, youngsters, families? You know, I can't. So the opportunity to serve is what brought me to Mission Readiness. You know, I now consider it my passion and my purpose. In a word, it brings me joy. I guess if I was asked to define what joy means, I say it's the intersection of passion and purpose. And that's what brought me to Mission Readiness. Because working with Mission Readiness team members and working for Mission Readiness as a volunteer, it gives me both. But let me reflect on my first encounter with mission readiness. It happened, I believe, in the summer of 2018. I was invited by fellow flag officers to attend a mission readiness meeting on board USS Midway, of which I served on in 1986 to 87 as a boiler's officer. So I was quite familiar with Midway. I mean, it is now a museum. And sometimes when I go on board to this very day, I feel like I'm a museum because we're both sort of old, ancient. Anyway, it was an exciting evening. You know, I had an opportunity to see some friends and colleagues that I hadn't seen in years. And it was that evening that I met Jake. You know, and Jake and I have been friends ever since. And it was that evening that I had a chance to hear others speak. And I was just all inspired by their comments, their commitment, and just how they believed in what mission readiness stood for and what it was doing, that it was making a difference. So I would say it was a mission that brought me in, but without a doubt, it was the people that kept me in. It's the people that keeps me going. You know, during my time with mission readiness, which I've had the pleasure of meeting students, faculty, administrators, and some really smart and influential folks, you know, in and around San Diego, you know, I've, Seen firsthand the wellness, nutrition, and physical education program that is positively impacting students in pre-K through the 12th grade across the greater San Diego area. However, Rich, I've also come to appreciate and understand the many challenges that threaten our children's health, safety, and security. The United States, a nation of wealth, prosperity, and ingenuity. We need to find a way to address those underlying causes with a sense of urgency and commitment to ensure that no child goes hungry and that every child has access to a healthy and nutritious lifestyle.
2: Well, and I have to imagine your experiences growing up as well with you know how, how critical those food programs were to your ability to learn and, and thrive as a, as a young man. I have to imagine that was part of that as well.
1: It did. It played a tremendous role. And when I go out today and I I see kids that are hungry, I think back to my childhood days sitting in classrooms. And, you know, I didn't have hunger pains, but I could hear others' stomachs grumbling in the classroom. And I'm thinking, you know, you can't be focused on what's being taught in the classroom if you're hungry. You can't be focused on the classroom if you're waiting for lunch period, because that's the most important period of the day. And I do recall, they started these two programs in my school when I was in junior high school. It was the breakfast program, and it was the after-school meal program. And some of the kids in my classes, you know, they would get to school early because breakfast was, it was a, an eventful moment for them because they didn't get it at home, especially nutritious meals. And they would stay after school just to get those after-school meals. That resonated with me. That remains with me today. And when I go out and I see these young kids who they don't have enough, but they don't have the right things to eat, the right nutritious meals, I'm thinking, how can you focus? How can you learn? How can you be a well-rounded child if you don't have the basics, the basics to get through the day?
2: No, absolutely true. I want to turn a little bit to some of the great things you've done on our speakers bureau at Mission Readiness. Uh, One of the most recent things, you were asked to join a special task force to inform the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition and Health last year. Great opportunity for you. Great opportunity for the organization. Could you share with us a little bit about your experiences as a task force member and some of the outcomes of that work?
1: Yeah, and a couple of words, which I'll say that task force to me, um, if I could characterize it, it was exciting. It was enlightening because I learned a lot. It was riveting because it kept me engaged. But yet, at the same time, it was rather depressing. And I'll talk about that. As far as the task force, it created we created an environment that was both professional and it was collegial. You know, it was tremendously refreshing to be a part of a a group of folks, professional, that sort of blurred the lines of political partisanship in order for us to create a meaningful report that would inform the administration's conference on hunger, nutrition, and health. And that's something that hadn't been done in nearly 50 years. And I find that astonishing. As a member of that task force, you know, I found myself working with some of the brightest minds and influential individuals in the food, health and nutrition sector. You know, just a name a few, uh, working with representatives from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, the Food Systems for the Future, Tufts University, and not to mention uh, Chef Jose Andres. Now, I never met him. Uh, but I had a chance to see him speak. He did a couple of uh, podcasts and video casts, And as we know, he's the founder of the World Central Kitchen.
2: Yeah, we had him on the podcast here. He's amazing.
1: He is so cool. And see, so now that I've met him, you know, I see him everywhere. Matter of fact, last night he was in, on TV. I think he was in, actually in Ukraine. And I'm going, God, this guy's phenomenal. That's the kind of people that we need in this world today, just trying to make a difference. So it's going back to the task force. You know, It was a good experience for me to see human nature in action and having some good folks, some smart folks willing to help others. I know hunger is widespread in a lot of regions in the world, but I did not know until I was a part of this task force just how pervasive this condition had become. I talked about the sadness uh, or the surprise that I had as being a member of that task force. I came to realize that a lot of the folks on the task force and other members in this sector, they were unaware of the threat that this phenomenon poses to the armed forces and by extension, our nation's national security. However, fortunately, as a mission readiness representative, I was able to expose to my colleagues and my task force counterparts the challenges and the looming crisis of this existential threat that it confronts our country. The good news, Rich, is that there were a number of sidebar discussions that I had, back channel communications with folks that wanted to know more and better understand the situation that we find ourselves from an armed forces perspective. So for the mission of the task force itself, in my opinion, It was a total success. I believe that we were able to deliver ambitious and actionable recommendations that are needed to support the administration's effort to end hunger, advance nutrition, and improve health in the United States. So let me just give you a couple of comments about the study itself. You know, we had online in-person meetings, we had convenings and listening sessions, And we were able to take a large amount of data and interpret that data, all the while capturing the really diverse experiences and perspectives of the individuals that are living in that moment and being directly impacted by the crisis. You know, the study started in April and we finished the final report and delivered it six months later to the White House. And I gotta tell you, so I think it was well received. It made sense. I think it nests well with so many other things that the administration is doing. You know, the report included like 30 policy recommendations, if I'm not mistaken, approximately about 200 policy actions and some other potential business commitments that was included in the report. So I think we did a great job. I feel like we did. I think we did our level best within a time That we had to do it. I mean, we gathered a lot of information. We did a lot of listening sessions and we brought it all in, synthesized it, and we made sense of it all.
2: Well, Frank, as, you know, as part of that conference and the great work you all did there, the administration published a national strategy on hunger, nutrition, and health back in September. You know, the, And the main goal there, they said, was to end hunger and increase healthy eating and physical activity by 2030. Pretty ambitious goal. Based on your work with the task force and your work with Mission Readiness, what can Mission Readiness do to play a part in helping achieve that goal?
1: Yeah, great question. Primarily, I say we create strategic awareness, you know, and that strategic awareness, it, it helps to generate a sense of urgency that we have to have to head off this crisis. Secondly, we help to reinforce, promote, and advance the policies needed to address the systemic issues that are creating and that are exacerbating the situation that we find ourselves So for example, Rich, there are several pillars in the national strategy that I think align with mission readiness priorities, such as improving food access and affordability. In particular, this pillar itself, it aligns with our advocacy work to modernize this program called SNAP, which stands for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Similarly, under the pillar supporting physical activity for all, I think, and I believe that mission readiness is well-suited to highlight the very importance of daily physical activity and to promote that physical activity and those guidelines for Americans. Of course, within these pillars and in other ways, mission readiness is well-positioned to discuss the connection between investments in hunger, nutrition, health, and the nexus with national security rich you know the story and the situation as well as i do but for our listeners who do not allow me to reiterate this that childhood obesity in america is an epidemic and although it's well documented it is not wholly understood some numbers if i may the trends That we have seen over the years has been on the rise. In 2020, 19%, I'll say it again, 19% of youth ages between two and 19 19 years of age were classified as obese. Nationwide, a third of our 17 to 24-year-olds do not do not qualify for military service strictly due to their weight conditions. When you combine obesity, failed physical standards with other eligibility factors such as crime, poor academics, you get an astonishing 77% of Americans within the prime recruiting age, and that's between the ages of 17 and 24, that would be ineligible to serve in the armed forces. There are many factors, but the one that concerns me and the one that I think that we are focused on is the issue of health, nutrition, so that we can stave off this issue of rising obesity among our children. We gotta get ahead of this. And I'm gonna tell you why. And I want us to step back for a moment so that we can look forward. Say, for instance, some reason our nation had to enact a draft. Let's just imagine, Rich, imagine the challenges it would take to create a formidable armed forces to defend, challenge, and defeat potential adversaries. That would be a huge undertaking. And that undertaking would consume a tremendous amount of resources. Key among them would be time. guess so let's look at it this way if I if we are aware of this problem you can be sure that our potential adversaries are also keenly aware why is this important as an armed forces we compete for talent from the same talent pool as other government and public and, and public and private sector companies and organizations we need a breadth of talent from which to compete not a dearth, elsewise, Rich, we run the risk of not being able to recruit and retain the talent to maintain a formidable military that gives us a competitive edge over others. It is a risk that I believe we can ill afford to take.
2: No, well said, Frank. And in, and in fact, you and uh, Senator Bill Frist, formerly of Tennessee, published an opinion piece on this very issue uh, in The Hill in uh, December of 22. And I, I thought it was an incredible piece, well written and, and, and very persuasive.
1: Oh, Senator Frist, I got to tell you, when you get someone like that of that stature, who is given up their time and their energy and their intellect to a cause like this, I mean, you just got to feel good about it, you know, and, you know, in addition to being a great American, you know, he was one of the co-chairs of the task force we just discussed. And in that piece, that op-ed that was published in The Hill, you know, we talked about the impact of poor nutrition on our nation's overall health and well-being, and also how investments in child nutrition are deeply, deeply connected to ensuring America's military readiness and our national security remain sound and stable and that is certainly a message i intend to share with those in attendance at a conference i'm going to be speaking at this spring
2: well i was going to ask you about that as a matter of fact so you're the keynote speaker uh, at the general session for the 37th national child nutrition conference which is a, a huge honor and we're thrilled you get to do that maybe give us a sneak preview of what you intend to share with that audience
1: yeah, I'm, I am really honored and privileged to be asked to speak at that conference. And I've done some research. It, it is a big deal. Uh, I'm a, I'm just a small little pebble in the pond, but this is a big deal. And and I want to make sure that I represent mission readiness appropriately. So I've had a couple of months, and I will have a couple of more months, to prepare my comments you know, for that event. And since the conference is will be attended mostly by those in the nutrition and health sector, you know, I'll be preaching to the choir. But I'm gonna emphasize the things that I just talked about. You know, mission readiness, the mission, how long we've been at this, you know, the type of influence and the type of change that we're trying to make at the policy level, at the state level, at the community level. And these are the points I'm going to make. But most importantly, I'm going to share with them the issue of how this is impacting military readiness, and by extension, how this puts at risk our national security interests. So I'm pulling it all together, and I got a couple more months to work on it, but those are the key themes for my speech.
2: Now, it should be fantastic and a great opportunity for you and a, a great opportunity for mission readiness. Thank you for doing that. Well, last question, we always ask our guests, what books are you reading or what books might you recommend
1: to our listeners? (laughs) i am going to say this, and this is an admission. You know, I am 60 plus, let's just put it like that. Uh, I still read comic books. That's the first thing. You know, I still read books like Ender's Game. And I'll tell you why, because some of the things I read when I was 10 years old, you know, they are really coming to fruition today. Technology is catching up with the imagination. Some of the other books I'm reading is one of my favorites is My American Journey by General Colin Powell. I am a fan. He is one of my heroes, the top five. Uh, The second one is a book called Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington. And he is a hero of mine. Because when you read that little small book, and it's an easy read, it gives you the journey uh, in the life of a person who went from rags to not riches, but from rags to being a very influential person back in the day, those dark days. The third book I'll say is uh, a book by Admiral Bill McCraven called Make Your Bed, where he talks about the simple things in life that are a big deal. The next book that I love is To Risk It All, and that's by another one of my heroes, Admiral Jim Stavridis. I mean, he's just brilliant. <laughs> and I, I just I, I just couldn't say enough about him and have the time for me to do so. But my final and all-time favorite book is the Bible. Because when you read the Bible and when you try to understand it, you'll see that all things flow from that that book and everything that we are encountering and enduring today was foretold back in that day. So those are my top books. I mean, it's there's a lot out there, but if I have to go to something to either encourage me, enlighten me, or to make me feel better about life, I go to those books.
0: Oh, no,
2: fantastic. Well, Admiral Frank Pons. thank you so much for being a guest today. On the Mission Radius podcast. If somebody wants to find you online, where would they go?
1: Uh, Wow, if you Google me, I'm there. I didn't know that. But I even heard and I found out later from a friend of mine that I even have a a wiki page. And that's phenomenal. I guess that's a big deal having a wiki page. But I have a LinkedIn uh, account. So if you go in and you go to LinkedIn and you um, search for Fernandez Pons, which is my real name, Frank Pond, is, is the name that I go by. If you if you do that, then you'll find me.
2: Fantastic. Well, thanks again for being on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Rich, for the opportunity to share my story, my journey with the Mission Readiness team. To everybody out there that will listen to this podcast, I say be safe and God bless.
2: Well, Jake, that's an absolutely incredible individual. And I just really enjoyed that conversation. I mean, from his stories about growing up as a kid and 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 being, you know, benefiting from all these amazing programs that, that we advocate for to all the stuff he did in the military and then afterward, just, uh, just absolutely great conversation.
0: Yeah, I agree, sir. He's a leader who spent his life serving others. And that came through, just as you said, through his life experiences, his professional military experiences, and, you know, now as a civilian volunteering to serve Mission Readiness and other organizations in his community. He's certainly a role model for me, and I know many others. Um, I also think he's a role model for our fellow Mission Readiness members as he takes on great opportunities like site visits and panel discussions and meetings with policymakers. You know, those are things that we have um, opportunities for all the time. So we're always looking for our amazing members to engage in ways that work for them. Um, and they're always there for us. So uh, we if you're interested in opportunities, just let us know. We're always available to connect. And there's a lot going on that we can uh, very much like Admiral Ponds and like yourself, sir, engage you on.
2: No, well, well said, Jake. And And so I would I would echo that for any of our members go to the website, send a note in and tell us what you'd like to do. There are ample opportunities to participate in Mission Readiness and and the great programs we support. Well, thanks for listening to the Mission Readiness podcast today. Today's show was written and produced by Jake Ferreira, Kimberly Little, and Becky Mendoza. For more about Mission Readiness or to find an archive of every episode of the podcast, visit strongnation.org. The program is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, give us a positive review, and tell your friends about the program. Until next time, thank you for supporting our work at Mission Readiness to strengthen national security by ensuring kids stay in school, in shape, and out of trouble.